There are a lot of saints here. You must be looking for something, seeking something, needing something, curious about something. Of course, I don't know what that is. I can only uh, pray and um, ask the Lord for some impressions. And then words come and we speak the words. That's all. Where the words go and what the words do, that's up to the Spirit and up to the hearer. Um, I'd like to present, the meeting has to end promptly at 6.30, so this needs to be relatively concise. What relatively concise is, I don't know. But at least it's less than an hour. And some impressions, some burden has been unfolding this way. So I'll share in four sections. And in each of the four sections... There is a focus word that will be our concentration. And also for the fourth section, except we'll have to add a little word to make that particular word significant. Revelation 4.11 is the unique verse in the entire Bible that tells us why we exist. I love this verse very much. And what does it say? You have the four living creatures praising and worshiping God on the throne. And then they declare this. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive the glory and the honor and the power. Now we have the explanation. For you have created all things, and because of your will, they were and were created. Admittedly, this is a general and universal statement. It is saying we were all created because God has a will. And according to the Greek language, that word for will is not mainly or merely a resolve It is a desire with determination. God's will is his desire with the determination to carry it out. That is the reason there's a universe. All the things in the universe exist. Even an entity like Pluto that For decades, I thought it was a planet. Now it's been downgraded (laughs) to a what? I don't know. What are you when you're a downgraded planet? Everything and everyone exists for God's will. Then if we go to Ephesians chapter 1 we have some further definition or at least unveiling concerning God's will. 
Verse 1 speaks of the good pleasure of his will. And verse 9 speaks of the mystery of his will. And verse 11 of the counsel of his will. The good pleasure of God's will indicates that God's intention and determination are for the fulfillment of the desire of his heart. Actually, the desire of God's heart is the source of everything. Because God has a heart's desire, he has a will. And the will is embodied in the purpose And the purpose is accomplished through the plan, which also is the economy. So God's will and his good pleasure go together. They are intrinsically related. And actually, only those who care for God's good pleasure will care for God's will. One reason for that is the anti-God will in the universe which has been injected into fallen humankind to make them self-willed is incredibly strong. And it is not pleasing to God simply to overpower this anti-God will and to virtually constrain us to do his will. There's no sweetness in that. I assure you, the only persons who want to see God's will done on earth are those who realize that connected to God's will is something called his good pleasure that which makes him happy, that which satisfies him, that which fulfills the desire of his heart. If we do not receive an infusion of the Lord's love and of his element to care for the desire of his heart, then I assure you, we'll never care for his will. we will rather pursue a course for our own good pleasure, pursue a course according to our own good pleasure to as much as possible to fulfill our own intention or the intention of others that were wrought into us as we were growing up. And we will stay within the realm of what we call God's permissive will. What he will let you do. And that's how most Christians live. Hardly anybody knows what God's good pleasure is. And hardly anybody cares. It takes quite a bit of love to care for what is in a person's heart. I attended a very sweet wedding. What? Three and a half hours ago. Four four and a half hours ago. There was a lot of love there. And I have a lot of hope in this new marriage that the sister will not simply love this excellent brother, but she will care for what is in his heart. And that she will be one with him in love to fulfill that which is in her husband's heart. If we just love in an external way, not really caring for the deep desire of that person, 
Our love is shallow. But we'll come back to love later. Then in verse 9, we have the mystery of God's will. And I would like to comment on this in a simple way to tell you we just don't understand how this will of God is how it's carried out. Especially in the lives of consecrated persons. Those that have given the Lord the ground to occupy them and to direct them. And that's a small minority of persons. There's a sense in which God is unsparing with them. Here you've given yourself to me. You will let me work in you. And it seems often with this kind of believer, nothing is simple. In the world, the marriage matter is relatively simple. You meet someone somewhere, there's mutual attraction, there's affection, and then you get on with it. But with the perfect will of God people, it is often inexplicable, mysterious. And so please don't look to me, don't look to anyone to give you a method on how to know what God's will is. I hope the message I will now refer to has been recorded. And if it's been recorded, it will eventually be printed. It was given in Los Angeles in about 1968, during which year brothers like Jim and I were alive and well on the earth. <laughs> and you simply were not, okay? And Brother Lee touches on the matter of knowing God's will. And he refers to Paul in Philippians. And Paul says, I am, in effect, I'm pulled in two directions. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. It's far better. And he had been in paradise somehow, out of the body probably. He knew what was there. Then he said, but it's better for you that I stay. This will profit you for your faith and joy. So I will stay. So he decided, I will stay. And then what happened? He got martyred. So that was the background. And our brother said something like this. If you ask me 20 years ago, brother, how can I know God's will? I would have given, I would have given you a list of 10 items. If you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have given you a shorter list of five items. Now if you ask me, brother, how can I know God's will? Then he paused. He put his hands down to his side. He shook his head and said, I don't know. And neither do I. It's a mystery. I, I can't recall the chapter in the verse in Proverbs where this is from. Those of you with smartphones or PDAs or the latest version of the smallest laptop, probably the size of your thumb, <laughs> might find the answer before I finish the question. There's a verse which says, a man, a person's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can one understand his own way? I have to tell you, I do not understand my own life. Because there's another party, God, the Lord, directing steps 
Do you know what Jojo Chanpong told me? Of course you don't know. Why do I ask you, do you know? There's no way you can know. <laughs> that, that question has no epistemological standing. He told me this, that he was praying with some brothers early in 207, that in 207, that would be the year they find their counterpart. And it's now late in 207, and Jojo is wondering, you know, is this yet another last-minute answer of the Lord at 1159? And one sister with a shepherding heart, an older sister, and often older sisters, they can do this. She was burdened to fellowship with him and say, why don't you pray for the Lord to direct your steps? So he did. And then before the end of December 2007, he met was attracted to, eventually fell in love with Leslie Burrow. Are you willing for the Lord to direct your steps? When that happens, although the whole process is a mystery, God's will is done. Then we read... In verse 11, of the counsel of God's will. And here's what the note says. God's will is his intention. God's counsel is his consideration of the way to accomplish his will or intention. I don't know if you're about to shout no fair. I admit there's a certain inequality here. We're human and he's God. And he is considering how is he going to accomplish his will with you? What's the best way? What is the best time? And sometimes I tell young people much younger than you, they're in the training. God has a will. God has a way to carry out his will. And God has a time. If you are willing for all three, you will be led into God's perfect will. It's not only that God has a will, he has, his will has a counsel. He, how will this work out? What needs to happen to you first? What experiences do you need to have? Then the timing. Now, I'm not a young person. I can tell you regarding God's timing, I've only made two mistakes. I've either been ahead or behind. Other than that, I'm just spot on, as they say in the UK. Timing means a lot with God. Okay. Our first point is that God has a will for which everything was created. And we exist. And we exist as a particular kind of human being in space-time. Because God has a will, and with this will, there is a good pleasure, a mystery, and a counsel. The second word is purpose. And we already indicated that God's will, based on his good pleasure, is his intention. And his purpose now, is the embodiment of God's will. It is now his determined intent. It is his operation toward his goal. 
And with this word purpose, we will start to get a little more personal. How personal? That will depend on you. And two verses from 2 Timothy will help us. The first is chapter 1, verse 9, referring to God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the times of the ages. I just will say this, God saved us and called us according to his own purpose. The will, which is now the purpose, was the reason, or, yeah, the reason we can say, for his saving us and calling us. Because he has something called his own purpose. Some of you heard me say last night, some of you heard me say several years ago in a college retreat, my purpose in August in 1955 in going to New Wilmington, Pennsylvania on a bus with other young people was to have a relatively unsupervised week with Jane. That was my own purpose, according to my good pleasure and according to my counsel. And we arrived there on a Saturday. And the conference was held on the campus of Westminster College. And college student young men were the waiters. And then what happens is Lord's Day night after the meeting, I'm walking into town, and so is Jane, but not with me. She's walking hand in hand with some less than gorgeous college man. <laughs> and that was her way of communicating a change of heart. So I was stuck in this religious event for a week, Janeless in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania. Can you think of a more tragic fate? <laughs> not Janeless in New York City, not Janeless in Paris, not Janeless in San Francisco, Janeless in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania. Okay? That happened on purpose. God had me meet Jane on purpose. And that's how I became a Presbyterian, not by theological conviction. Was My girlfriend was a Presbyterian, so I just started becoming a Presbyterian. I wasn't saved anyway, so who? It didn't matter. Then God decided, you're going to get saved during this conference. And I need Jane to get you there. Then I need Jane to abandon you. <laughs> so tonight I can say, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jane. <laughs> May you live happily ever after. I was saved just as you were saved, according to God's own purpose. Now, if we go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, let me see. I've got to find it. Yes. See, in verse 9, Paul talks about those that have departed from his teaching. But verse 10 says, But you have closely followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, 
let's focus on you have closely followed my purpose. Chapter 1, verse 9 speaks of God's own purpose. But Paul did not say to Timothy, you have closely followed God's own purpose. He said, you have closely followed my purpose. Do you think Paul's purpose was a different purpose from God's own purpose? No way. If we just speak of God's own purpose, although it's true, it's objective, and it's something apart from us. Eventually, Paul was so one with God in his will and purpose that he could say, my purpose. If you follow my purpose, you will follow God's own purpose. Because that is why I live. And he was indicating to Timothy, that is why I will be martyred. His purpose is my purpose. The situation of, let's just limit ourselves to the Lord's recovery and to those that would like to at least have fellowship and our, our hearts are open for all to have fellowship. God's own purpose is out there. God's purpose is in Ephesians. God's purpose is in Romans 12. God's purpose is in the footnotes. God's purpose is in the ministry books. But only when it becomes our purpose are we connected to it. And when it becomes our purpose, then we undergo certain changes. One of which is we have a strong sense of destiny, of cause. God has a purpose. His purpose has become my purpose. My purpose is to live on earth for God's purpose. Therefore, my life has meaning. Then results a determination, not only a destiny, a determination that everything of significance in my human life will be related to this purpose. The purpose is the criterion. I exist for God's will. God's will is embodied in his purpose. And for his will and purpose, I exist. So let's acknowledge the obvious. We all exist. It is not simple to exist. To live a human life, to have your needs met, to somehow fulfill what has been encoded into your being by God's creation, to somehow activate what is in you by God's creation, and to exist, we have the basic needs. We hardly need to enumerate them. And if the needs aren't met, we cannot live for God's purpose. The needs must be met. But here's the sad situation. It's what I would call the great inversion in the hearts of people. 
And this great inversion has two main phases or aspects. One, one form of it is my existence is the purpose of my existence. And you've got a lot of philosophies that will fortify that. So what happens is existence itself becomes the purpose of existence. And existence obliterates God's purpose and God's will for our existence. Now, I will fast forward. At least for you will be a fast forward. For me, it will be a replay. The, the conclusion of this approach has already been written. And it's vanity of vanities. All is vanity. But you don't know that, do you? You don't go to work, I don't think. If I'm, if I'm inaccurate then just adjust me during our eating time. Do you, do you go to work on Monday with the sense the whole thing is vain? The whole enterprise is vain in and of itself. It's meaningless. I would go further. It's absurd. It's a joke. If there is no sense of vanity, this means there is no sense of purpose. And instead, human life or human existence is an end in itself. And since it's an end in itself, the only goal is to be on a career path that's your word, not mine, that will enable you to attain something in the sphere of existence. And then the whole thing will be nullified. Everything. I, I, I hope to be around. I want to see what happens sociologically after the tribulation, when money is abolished, I want to see what happens. I visited Cuba earlier this year. And a brother who had escaped by swimming spent two nights and a day in the ocean trying to get to Guantanamo, which he did. And he was now a U.S. citizen with his family, and so he was my guide. This is what happened in the Marxist paradise. Berkeley, hear this, you fools. You fools. Once a revolution had been solidified, during one weekend, the government changed the currency. By Monday morning, the previous currency would be valueless. So you may say, no problem. We just exchange all of our money for the new currency. Ah, this is a Marxist paradise. Equality is defined downward. There was a very low limit on how much could be exchanged. A few thousand dollars. And in 48 hours, the whole nation was brought into poverty. That's the socialist version of equality. When the Lord comes back, human government will be abolished. You want change you can believe in? Pray for the kingdom to come. 
That's change you can believe in. One perhaps disadvantage of being not young is that you can say, you know, I've been here before. Change was a key word in the 1992 election. This is part of the endless cycle. Kick the bums out. Elect these ones. Four years later, kick the bums out. I'm more radical than that. Smash the whole system. (laughs) My point is that if we exist for our existence itself and we separate our existence from God's will and purpose, our verdict will eventually be vanity on our own life. And once you have your first or second midlife crisis, there is such a thing, and you discover, you know, my dreams are not being fulfilled and I'm well into the second half and I'm not doing too well, then people panic and they do bizarre things. Because they fear, rightly, it's all heading to nothing. Then the other way, the other aspect of the great inversion is to functionally rewrite the prayer in Matthew 6. Doesn't mean you tamper with the text. It means you adjust the order. And the first item is, give me my daily bread. Lord, meet my need. My need. My this, my that. And these are real needs. I would never minimize the need of a person with a chronic health problem that's debilitating. I would never try to dissuade such a person from praying for a jubilee. I would join in the prayer. But the Lord begins that prayer with, Father, your name, may it be sanctified. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come. Then he turns the prayer to our existence. Father, give us our daily bread. Daily bread is what you need for your existence. We need the Spirit either to do an x-ray or to take a sonogram or an MRI or whatever, a CAT scan of our inner being to make clear to us what are the scale of values. The Lord's word is kingdom first. Kingdom first. Father's name first, will of God first. Then, lest we're unbalanced in our spirituality, we should pray, Lord, I need to be married. There's no shame in that. Please give me a sister as a wife, a brother as a husband. Lord, I need to upgrade my education. Lord, I need a trade. These are legitimate things to pray for second. I leave to the Spirit, and I leave to you this question, what is first? 
Uh, speaking in the context of the church life, I say this. I haven't said it often, but I have said it before. If for you the kingdom of God is not first, then I don't understand you. I, I can't I can't bridge the gap between us. I, I have no idea what you're doing. You're in the church, I guess. You're in the recovery, I suppose. But in what way? Is it a kingdom first recovery? I know the arguments. I think I've heard all the arguments. Oh, you've got to be practical. Don't go to the full-time training. You've got to be practical. Don't marry a co-worker. You'll never be affluent. Well, true. (laughs) But, But I don't care. That's cultural accommodation. I'm too radical for that. Kingdom first. God's purpose first. Will of God first. But we cannot ignore the practicality of our existence. We have needs. And what happens is, and Brother Nee points this out in the book, The Prayer Ministry of the Church, when we are kingdom first people, the enemy attacks us on the level of need, of daily bread. That is why we need to pray for it. And not just spiritualize it. We need to bring our needs to the Lord, our human needs, our human longings and desires, especially those needs, longings, and desires that affect the quality of our existence, our health, our capacity to be for God's purpose. And the Father, He just has a way of taking care of them. The third word is love. And I emphasize this because once the purpose is becoming subjective, And once we are committed to God's will, we need a powerful, energizing motivation. And nothing, have you discovered this, is stronger than love. Love is as strong as death. That song of songs. Many waters cannot quench it. It's powerful. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that the love of Christ constrains us. It's like we are in a narrow road with walls of rock on the side and a mighty tide of water flows through that confined area. It's just carried along. And in a practical sense, the love will determine everything. In 2 Timothy, I just thought of this now, and it's before the verses I want to focus on. Paul writes this, starting in chapter 3, But know this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Boasters, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, implacable, slanderers, without self-control, savage, not lovers of good, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. As the age comes to an end, love will be intensified, positively and negatively. And in this passage that we read from, does not describe the world in general. The world in general will be worse 
This describes the degraded situation in the religious system known as Christianity. Lovers of self. Lovers of money. Lovers of pleasure. Rather than lovers of God. And if we think that we don't have an untapped capacity to love. We don't know ourselves. Many of us have been protected from our own being by being in the Lord's recovery, by being covered by protective prayers of saints. And we may not understand what can happen when a negative love takes over a person. Lovers of money. Lovers of money. The Bible does not condemn having money. The Bible does not condemn condemn being rich. Lovers of money. Lovers of pleasure. One of our needs is we need enjoyment. It's a need. When God created humankind, he didn't put us in the Sahara Desert. Probably the Sahara Desert didn't exist. That's a product of the fall. He didn't put us in an ice flow with the penguins to suffer in the cold. He put us in a garden with trees that are pleasant to the sight. We need happiness. We need enjoyment. It's a need. That's why I have no space in my being for sourpuss religious persons and people who are religiously strict and, and just don't allow for any kind of human enjoyment. That's not the cross. That's asceticism. That's, that's, more to, that's closer to Hinduism than to God's economy. I don't deliberately eat food I hate because it's spiritually beneficial. (laughs) Do you? That's weird. (laughs) But when the enemy operates and the love of pleasure takes over, that's another thing. It's not simply the need for enjoyment. You are now defined as a lover of pleasure. This is the background for chapter 4. And Paul is in a perilous situation. He's in prison for the second time. This time he knows he will not be spared. He will be martyred. And it is a risky thing to identify yourself with an imprisoned apostle. It's one thing to say we're one with the ministry during the glory days in Ephesus at some other time. Oh, praise the Lord for this ministry. Now the minister is on death row. The enemy used this tactic in one country when they took over. They put all the believers in a building and they said, we don't oppose Christ. We oppose Watchman Nee. We just ask you to disassociate yourself from Watchman Nee. And then those officials, they left the room, let the saints discuss. And most of them took the bait. Paul was being forsaken right and left. He wasn't pitying himself but he was acknowledging the fact. And this defection reached the level of the co-workers. And Paul said in verse 10, Demas has abandoned me. Then he gave the reason. Having loved the present age. How did Paul know this? 
Well, I don't know, but I would say this. Godmen like Paul, they, they just know stuff. <laughs> they just talk to you and they know stuff. They know your heart. Demas loved the present age. And now to be with Paul imperiled his existence in the present age. Who is Paul? I'm out of here. He loved the age. 1 John 2 speaks of loving the world. It's one thing to be an attorney, even to be a partner in a law firm, and to be well into six figures in your salary, and to be excelling in your field of speciality. There's nothing wrong. Daniel did this. At the very top of government service for decades. Just short of the emperor. Such responsibility. Such capacity. His whole adult life. The question is, do you love it? Do you love the age? You put these different kind of loves together. Loving money. Loving self. Loving pleasure. Loving the age. The vast majority, especially in the affluent countries of the West, in the Lord's recovery, will not stand. But there's another kind of love. Paul mentions in verse 8. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will recompense me in that day, and not only me, but also all those who have loved his appearing. He's not just loving the Lord. Here's an illustration I've used before. The trainees in the full-time training voluntarily accept certain restrictions. They have 24 hours off from about 6 p.m. on the Lord's Day to 6.55 p.m. on Monday. And they don't have to be in uniform, and they can play ultimate frisbee. They go to Chaparral Park around 9, and they play ultimate frisbee. They can do a number of things. But they're not allowed to go to movies. Well, right next to a post office where I have to go to is a theater. Let's suppose on a Monday, I go to the post office, and I'm coming out. It's 3.30 in the afternoon, and a group of trainee sisters are coming out of the theater. And they see me, and they see me, see them. Now, let me tell you this. They love me, but they don't love my appearing. You got the point? Brother Ron, we love you, but, but not here. <laughs> not now. So don't gloss over this. It doesn't say all those who love the Lord. You could say, I'm home free, I love the Lord. To love his appearing. I don't believe a believer who's at a casino run by Native Americans or is in a casino in Las Vegas doing two slot machines at once. <laughs> and that is the time of the Lord's manifestation. will love his appearing. The, the positive love needs to be activated. We need more love than the children of God have ever needed to overcome all the negative loves on this age, which have allies in our own being according to the kind of person we are. Some people love clothes. Others don't care. They couldn't care less. I don't... You're not going to find me in Ace Hardware. If I'm going to a store, it'll be Borders. 
give me a caramel macchiato and the religious section. I'm in paradise. Barnes and Noble. That is my peril. I'm not going to an auto parts store. I'm not going to go to Cerritos Auto Square. That's your thing. I couldn't care less how the 49ers are doing. I don't like the Raiders, so I like to see them obliterated every, every Lord's Day. I just don't like them. If you're a Raiders fan, have mercy on me. And I'll have mercy on you for being a fan of such a team. <laughs> the love has to be so activated to go along with the will and the purpose and then it, it peaks like this. 2 Corinthians 5. 14. For the love of Christ constrains us because we have judged this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live may no longer live to themselves, but to him who died for them and has been raised. No longer live to themselves. Brother Lee has a message in the elders' training, I think is volume 7, on the real meaning of being full-time. Being a full-timer is not a matter of dropping your job. Being a full-timer is that you live to the Lord. Whatever your profession is. You can get up in the morning once you're conscious enough to know what day it is and you're clear about the agenda. You can tell the Lord, Lord, I consecrate this day to you. I consecrate myself to you. You have put me in this occupation and this profession. Today, by your grace, I will live to you. And if you are living to the Lord, you will surely be the best at whatever it is you're doing. You will excel. You may advance. You may be rewarded. But something has been settled inwardly. You're not living to yourself. You're not a lawyer to yourself. You're not a surgeon to yourself. You're not a mechanic to yourself. You're not a full-timer to yourself. You're not a full-time pneumatic mom to yourself. You're not to yourself. God has a will for which everything was created. God has a purpose according to which we were saved and called. Now this God of will and purpose has poured out His love in our hearts to produce a powerful love in our being that will separate us from the negative loves. We need to love. We're, we're made to love. We have to have an object of love. But it won't be money. And it won't be pleasure. And it won't be the world. And it won't be cars. And it won't be clothes. And it won't be books. And it won't be smartphones. And it won't be the Blackberry Storm, the first touchscreen phone. Gotta have one. You, you just got a Blackberry four months ago. It wasn't a storm. I got a smartphone. I don't know. I'm not sure why it's called that. I need it. I have to have email contact worldwide, wherever I go. I don't love it. I don't kiss it. I'm not a techie. I don't have to have the latest thing. I drive an almost 11-year-old Nissan. And it's a color I don't like. I would never buy a car that color. So the Lord gave me a car the color of which I don't like, so I won't love it. I won't tell you openly what color it is because there are probably 47 persons in this room who have that color. <laughs> but I'm thankful for it. 
I have what I need. I don't have an ideal marriage. I have a real marriage to a real person, an imperfect person whom I love. I don't have an ideal family. I have an actual family. I don't have an ideal church life. I have an actual church life. And I exist for God's will and purpose. And His love constrains me to love Him and live to Him. And then I end with this. Same thought is in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. In Romans 14, 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself. And none dies to himself. For whether we live, we live to the Lord. And whether we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. This afternoon, I was awakened from a nap. It's okay. Uh, My cell phone was vibrating in a certain way, and I realized this is not a text. This is not an email. This is a call. So I felt I should take it and A sister in Anaheim who is a physician called on behalf of a middle-aged couple to tell me that their son had just passed away. He was severely disabled. I'm not minimizing the loss. Chronically ill. But it's a loss. Some will die to the Lord. If we're not raptured, eventually we will all die to the Lord. But let's not get all serious about this aspect. You're young. You're immortal, right? (laughs) You're invincible. The question is, will you live to him? I don't know what graduate school you should go to. I don't know what profession you should be in. I don't know what job you should take. I don't know where you should live. I don't know what kind of car you should drive. I'm not the Lord. This is not Cuba, where we define equality downwards. We're all on the same pitiful level, although we have free dental care. Big deal. I don't have food for my family, but you can drill my teeth at no cost. Is, is this a paradise or what? To determine what is worldly, I can't do that. I'm speaking from a very basic level with these four words. Will. God's will. Purpose. God's purpose. Love. Loving the Lord, loving His appearing, and living to Him. If all the working saints, hard-working saints, Live to Him. They are as much full-time as any co-worker in the Lord's recovery. It's not an outward thing. It's a matter of our being. When you live to Him, then you live a life for the fulfillment of God's purpose, for His perfect will. Your needs will be met somehow, in some way, at some time and what will be in you you will love his appearing and as we tried to share last night you won't be bent double you will stand erect and lift up your head and pray come Lord Jesus well I was concerned late this afternoon actually about like two minutes to five what I was going to say or at least now I know (laughs) I believe this is what the Lord wanted to bring out I just leave this to you you're not obligated to me I'm not measuring anybody I'm not judging anybody but what's in my heart is that you would do God's will Live for God's purpose. 
love the Lord's appearing, and live to Him in every stage of your life. And then finish the course as a victorious overcomer, bound for the kingdom. Amen. Well, we just have five minutes. I think it's better that we pray for five minutes. We have a lot of time we can fellowship about these things. And maybe we can just pray one person at a time, representing us all in prayer, praying relatively short prayers. Don't hold it back. Let the prayers come out. Open your spirit. Turn your heart. Let the prayers flow.